Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, we come to a great turning point, a hinge in the book of Romans. Paul has been asking and answering a series of questions in chapter three. What are the advantages of being a Jew or circumcision in verses one and two? Will the unfaithfulness of Israel make void the promises of God in verses three and four? If our unrighteousness reveals God's righteousness, how can we be punished in verses three through five? Are the Jews better than all the other people in verses nine through 20? And now we come to an amazing question. How are people saved in verses 21 through 30? The answer will begin with the Old Testament witness to salvation in verses 21. The need for salvation in verse 23. The method of salvation, not by good works, verses 27 and 28. Only by grace through faith in the perfect, unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus in verse 22, in verse 24, in verse 25. What did this sacrifice accomplish? It permits a just and holy God to declare repenting sinners righteous in verse 26. Later, Paul will describe the scope of that salvation, who it will include. It will include Jews and Gentiles. In verses 29 and 30. So it begins with the revelation of righteousness in verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You might be tempted to overlook those first two words in the verse. But now someone famously said, I think I am going to write a book entitled Big Butts of the Bible. <laughs> this, is, this would be in that book. Because what he is doing in this particular passage is he's signaling a massive shift in the subject matter. Paul notes that if the law measured man's unrighteousness, the gospel, the good news of Jesus measures God's righteousness. Let me repeat it in a slightly different way. The law reveals man's unrighteousness. 
The gospel reveals God's righteousness. So Paul is contrasting a time in the past with a time in the present. He's speaking of a law that was and a gospel that is. Paul will contrast man's pitiful, sinful condition with God's glorious salvation. We were under God's wrath, chapter 1, verse 18. We were spiritually dead and depraved. We were guilty by the law and conscience. We were in desperate need of salvation. And so Paul is going to argue, we are under God's grace in verse 24. We are spiritually alive forevermore. We are declared righteous in Christ. We are forgiven by His blood. We are provided salvation by faith in Christ. We might paraphrase this verse. But now... In this age of grace, a righteousness, a new kind of righteousness has been revealed, but not the kind of righteousness that depends on the law. And so it begs a question. Why must God save human beings apart from the law? Well, for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, human beings have attempted to please God through self-effort and self-righteousness. However, in spite all best efforts and all willingness to do what's right, we failed. We continue to sin. Human beings learned that they could never put away their own sin. In other words, we learn that what our sin teaches us is that we have a huge problem. And so the law failed on two counts. The law failed on two counts. Number one, because the law required obedience. The law doesn't allow for disobedience. And because the law requires obedience and because it doesn't allow for disobedience, anyone who disobeys the law becomes a lawbreaker, a transgressor of the law. And then number two, the law doesn't have the power to compel obedience. We might even say it's powerless to secure obedience. And so the law reveals the impossibility of self-righteousness. I'm reminded of a story. There was a bank robber, a notorious bandit. His name, if memory serves me correctly, was Jorge Rodriguez. He would sneak across the Mexican border through El Paso and then he would savage the border towns. He would rob the banks. He would steal the money. And before he ever got caught, he would secretly make his way across the border. And he always got away with it until one day a group of the towns just had it. And they hired one of the great detectives to go into Mexico and find Jorge Rodriguez. And sure enough, the detective eventually found him. He was in a little cantina hiding in the corner. 
And this guy, the detective, came out with his Colt 44. He pulled it and he said, you're done, Jorge Rodriguez. He goes, put your hands up. He he said, tell me where you've hidden that money or I'm going to kill you right now. And a guy named Juan Garcia said, lo siento, I'm sorry, senor, but but, um, Jorge Rodriguez does not speak any English whatsoever. He does not understand a word that you're saying. Would you like me to translate for you? He said, tell him that unless he tells me where the money is, I'm going to kill him where he stands. And so he repeated some words and, and Jorge Rodriguez started talking and talking and talking. He, he described, he said, tell the man that he should go outside of the city one mile. There he will, he'll find a well. If you go to the well, if you go halfway to the well and you take remove three bricks that are facing west, remove those bricks and in it you're going to find three million dollars worth of gold. And so Juan Garcia turned to the detective and he said, go ahead and kill me. I will never tell you where the gold is. You understand the point. Somehow something got lost in the translation. And people who attempt to keep the law, they lose something in the translation. Paul has proven, but not to everyone's satisfaction, that all human beings are sinners in need of a Savior. There is something, as people read the Bible, they keep thinking, yes, I'm a sinner, but... There's got to be something more than Jesus. There's got to be more than than something accepting him by faith. Let me try to make this as simple as I possibly can. The gospel is a transfer of righteousness from the heart of God to the heart of the individual. Everyone needs to hear the good news. Everyone needs to hear the gospel and reap the benefits of salvation. So how will we do that? Paul will spell it out. Paul will point out that the transfer or transaction will be made. And it's a transfer of the righteousness of God into your very being. So I need to tell you a little bit about that word righteousness. Righteousness is a word that's used At least three different ways in the Bible. Number one, it can refer to the nature or the character of God. In that sense, it becomes an attribute of God or speaks of God's holiness and justice and perfection. Number two, righteousness is a word that speaks, depending on the context, of a lack of godly character or sinful or unjust character. When it's used to describe human beings. And number three, the Bible speaks of a foreign or an imputed righteousness or perfection that's provided by God in Christ when human beings accept or believe or trust, if you will, that Jesus took our sins. God provides righteousness. We might think of it as a garment That we had sinful garments and we have been given permission to remove those sinful garments and we're able to put on a new clean garment that's provided for us by Jesus. 
And so in verse 21, I have a note in my Bible. The righteousness of God is all that God demands. The righteousness of God is all that God approves. And since the righteousness of God is all that he demands and all that he approves. That demand and that approval can only be found in Jesus himself. And so in order for us to understand that concept of righteousness, we have to understand it in the context in which it's given here. Righteousness is a word that includes the idea of demand and approval, but it also includes the idea of rightness. How can I be right? How can I be right before God? Augustine wrote unclean in the sight of God is everyone who is unrighteous. Clean, therefore, is everyone who is righteousness, if not in the sight of men, yet in the sight of God who judges without error. This becomes really, really important for each and every one of you. Do you want to know why? Because sometimes we think that rightness or righteousness is approval, not from God, but from our neighbor, from our husband, from our wife, from our children, from the society in which we live, from the church that we go to. You know, I thought you were a Christian. You don't act like a Christian. You don't look like a Christian. You don't talk like a Christian. You don't walk like a Christian. I I couldn't help but noticing that you're still flawed. But what if righteousness isn't something that is always determined by behavior? But what if it's something that speaks of something that is given by God in Christ. And so Paul points out that this righteousness is not legal, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. What does that mean? Lawless? No. Paul doesn't mean that the gospel or salvation is illegal, but rather that there is a way to experience God's righteousness apart from the law. What are you saying? That we're typically used to believing that good people are good on the basis of what they do or what they don't do. And so you're a good person if you do good things. And you're a bad person if you do bad things. And there comes a point in each and every person's life, even though they may not be willing to admit it, that their bad outweighs their good. And the reality is that no matter how good they try to be, it's never good enough for the approval that God demands. And you might be thinking, well, I go to church. I even have a Bible. I underline it with a yellow marker. And I try to be good. And I try to do this and I try to do that. And I've left most of my wickedness behind. And I even got a job doing something that I thought would be wholesome and healthy. And I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. You, like me, might decide, okay, look, in order for God to really accept me, I know what I'll do. I'll. I'll go in the ministry. I'll plant churches. 
I'll write books. I'll do a radio program. I'll do this. I'll do that. But you dis- you discover something that no matter how good you are and no matter what you do and no matter how well you do it, if you're doing it on the basis in order to receive approval by God, it'll never be enough. Because there's only one thing that God requires. There's only one thing that God wants. And that's perfection. And so when he says it's a righteousness, but it's a righteousness apart from the law, it's also a righteousness that cannot be earned or achieved in any way. It's not new being witnessed by the law and the prophets in what way in the Old Testament. How was a human being related to God? How does Adam stand justified or Enoch or Noah? How does Abraham stand justified or Isaac or Jacob before the giving of the law? How do you have friendship and relationship with God and the writer of Hebrews? In Hebrews chapter 11 is going to have this laundry list of famous people from the Old Testament who were justified apart from the law. It says that Abraham believed God and and it was accorded to him as righteousness. So it's apparently a kind of a righteousness that comes by faith and confidence in the promises of God. The Bible speaks of law and Messiah and a sacrificial system. But again, all these were to pave a way for a complete restoration to God through the Messiah. And so the plan wasn't concocted by human beings or wishful thinking. People aren't born righteous. You can't be born into a righteous family and then you can't acquire righteousness through the sum and the substance of every good thing that you've ever done. Righteousness doesn't come from language or culture or profession or religious persuasion. The only way a sinful human being can come into fellowship and friendship with God is by believing God's revelation and believing God's promise and believing the message of Jesus. Some people like to use the term for justified just as if I had never sinned. And that's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely right. The term justification is a legal term. It refers to the sovereign act of God whereby he declares righteous, the believing sinner, while he or she is still in a sinful state. Chuck Swindoll writes, When a sinner is justified by God, the Lord doesn't fake himself out and view the individual as innocent of sin. Rather, the divine act of justification declares the sinner absolutely acceptable to the heavenly father from the moment he or she trusts in Christ's payment for sin. And since the father is satisfied with his son, he also is satisfied with those who are his Through faith. And that's why John will say in 1 John chapter 5. Well, actually in 1 John chapter 5, I'm thinking verse 11. I better turn there. 1 John chapter 5. And this is the testimony. That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. 
He basically says, he who has the son has life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have life. And so for the person who says, I love God, but I don't want to accept Jesus. And I love God and, and I want to have peace with God and I want to be a good person and I want to do good things. But I don't want to accept the gospel and I don't want to embrace the gospel and I don't I don't want what Jesus has to offer. They'll never experience righteousness. Because Paul writes that this is a righteousness for everyone. Look what it says in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, the righteousness for everyone, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference. Here's what Paul is basically saying. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all. In what sense? It is the kind of righteousness that is necessary for everyone. Everyone? Yeah. Young or old? Yeah. Rich or poor? Yeah. Blind or lame? Yeah. Living in another country? Other another name? Yeah. It's everyone. Righteousness is given. Look what it says. To all who believe. And so it's definitely not given to all who reject. And so when Paul writes for there is no difference, what he's basically saying is that this is a righteousness needed by all. There is no meaningful distinction between human beings. Well, but what if you're a Mormon or a Muslim? What if you're a Hindu? What if you're an atheist or an agnostic or an unbeliever? It's a righteousness that's required by all. Well, why? Verse 23. For all have sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God. And by the way, this is the most definitive passage in all of the Bible on the subject of sin. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. By the way, there are two distinct verbs in this passage in verse 23. If you're the kind of person who takes notes or underlines, I want you to either note or underline sinned and fall short. These are the verbs, the action words in the passage. The first verb is in the aorist tense, sinned. The second is in the present tense, are falling short. Why is all of this important? Because it tells us something about the human condition. Paul makes it clear that all human beings, past, present, and future, have sinned. As a matter of fact, the literal meanings of the word in the Hebrew and the Greek fall under various categories. Once again, I have a note in my Bible. Transgression, number one, overstepping the law. Number two, iniquity. Number three, a failing to live up to the standards. And so my note says transgression and overstepping of the law, the divine boundary between good and evil, a failure to meet the divine standard, a trespass, the intrusion of self-will, 
into unbelief, an insult to the divine veracity. That means once God says something is true for the person who responds with, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. The first verb means something that has happened in the past. The second verb is something that continues to happen in the present. And so when the Bible says all have sinned, it means that all have come to a place of rebellion and disobedience and transgression. But it's also true that apart from the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus, everyone continues in that state. And so Paul writes, falls short of the glory of God in this sense, in the sense of how God wishes his glory to be manifested in them and through them. And so the word glory translates a Greek word doxa. We get the word doxology from that word. It's the thing where we sing. Um, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. You know the rest. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the doxology. Doxa is a word that describes opinion, but way more than opinion. Reputation. And so when it's used in relationship to the God, to the God of the Bible, it's recognition and honor. It's splendor and glory and brightness. In the Old Testament, glory was the aggregate word where if you could take every single attribute of God and put it in a box, he is all powerful, all knowing omniscient everywhere at once, every single attribute of God, everything that you can think about God, self-existent, invisible, holy, glorious, whatever is a word that can be used to describe the God of the Bible, you stick it in that box and out comes the word glory. Glory is the sum and the substance of his identity. Vincent thinks that this means the honor or the approbation which God bestows. And so the fact of sin looks to the historical entrance of the world of sin. And since all people are sinners by nature and by choice, because we can't help but sin and continue to sin, the Bible says, but the scripture has concluded all are under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus might be given to them that believe in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us in 1 John 1, 8. And God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. There is no man who does not sin, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none who does good. There's no one, Psalm 53, 3. The reoccurring theme, sin. All human beings come short of the glory. Again, the tense is present. The idea being they did it in the past. 
in every age and in every generation, they fell short and they did it and they continue to fall short. And the idea is that people are continuing to fall short right at this very moment and they will continue to fall short in every conceivable future that you can imagine. In other words, for the person who holds out the hope, who for just one split second, who says, surely, surely, surely there must be someone who doesn't fall short. And Paul's argument is every single human being in the past, every single with the exception of Jesus, every single human in the present, every single person in the future suffers from G. D D glory deficit disorder. There's never enough because the glory of God, listen carefully, is the standard for all mankind. It means his moral glory. It means his spiritual glory. It means excellence and splendor and beauty and majesty and magnificence and perfection. It means the perfection of light, the perfection of purity, the perfection of majesty, the perfection of perfect being. And someone will cry, foul! Foul. This is impossible. This is unobtainable. Yes. Yes, you get it. You finally grasp it. Foul. Impossible. Unobtainable. There was a, a person who came to a very famous evangelist and, and, the, and the person says, I want to get saved. And the evangelist said, it's too late. And the person was shocked. What evangelist ever said, it's too late. And the evangelist smiled and said, it's too late for you to help yourself. Because Jesus has already helped you in every way possible. It's too late for you to save yourself. It's too late for you to be good enough. It's too late for you to measure up. Jesus has done it all. Righteousness is possible only through justification and justification is a free gift of God. And since human beings have never earned it and never will earn it, human beings are justified by God's grace and God's grace alone through the redemption that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he talks about the restrictions of righteousness. He says being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The New King James reads specifically being justified freely. Freely, but the Greek text literally reads justified without a cause. Or we could translate this justified without payment. The point is there's nothing in us. There's nothing in us. There is nothing that prompts or pays, but rather freely by his Grace, there's nothing in us or anything that we can do to be deserving of being saved. And so for the person who says, 
you know, I think I could consider being a Christian if I could just stop drinking or drugging or thising and thatting. Whatever little laundry list you want to put on, whatever hand you want to put it on. If I could just stop doing this, if I could just stop doing that, if I could just start doing this and just start doing that. But the Bible says it isn't the absence or the presence of anything that you have done or can continue to do. You must come to him by by faith. Again, Swindoll writes, God declares us righteous when we have nothing but the sewage of sin to offer him. So why is he so good to us? Simply because he loves us. And if you were to ask, why does he love us? The answer would have to be just because he chose to. Unquote. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter seven. You'll remember the passage that reads. In verse six, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you. For the person who seems committed To the idea that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. For whatever reason, you may have overlooked that passage. God in the past saved people on the basis of grace, on the basis of faith. In what sense? God reveals a promise. In what sense? If you're going to have any hope or any way out, God's going to have to do it. So this is both the theme and the message of the book of Romans in that single sentence in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God offers salvation to the undeserved. God offers salvation based on love. God offers salvation on the basis of grace. By the way, the word redemption meant to purchase or release by the payment of a price. There are three words that are basically translated redemption in the New Testament. One word is agorazo, which means to purchase something out of the marketplace, much like. If you would go on eBay, have you ever been on eBay? Anyone? You go on eBay and there's two categories. One is buy it now. And the other one is bid. This one is a buy it now word. Um, There's another word. It's called um, ex agorizo which means to purchase out of the marketplace for yourself. That's the second word that's translated redemption. But the third word that's translated redemption is the one that's in our text. It's an intensive word. It's from the Greek word lutrosis, but it's apolutrosis, which means it's intensive. It means to purchase the release 
of a slave by way of paying the purchased price. This is the word that's used here. In the context, the idea is to purchase release on the basis of payment. It could even be used in the ancient world to describe someone not who was just simply sold into slavery, but someone who was kidnapped. And then the ransom that was demanded in order to purchase their release. And so Paul is going to argue that the purchase price is the redemption of Jesus. Our heavenly father makes his way into the marketplace of human bondage and human sin. And in the marketplace of human bondage and human sin, he will pay blood as the purchase price. So the father, motivated by love and grace, decides to purchase us from sin On the basis of a sacrifice. And so we're freed from sin. But there's more. Not only are you freed from sin. But you're now given permission. To enter into service on behalf of God. Through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, if all you got was deliverance and redemption from sin, if if you could just wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to heaven and not hell. That should cause your toes to tingle. But you not only get to wake up knowing that you're saved, you get to wake up knowing that you're now free to enter into service. And that's the point. It is through this redemption in Jesus that you are justified freely by his grace. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The focus that Paul shifts is on the awesome subject of what Jesus's death actually does and then how it benefits those who believe and embrace the gospel there are two broad benefits the father's heart number one is completely satisfied as a result of jesus's death verse 25 whom god set forth as a propitiation i know what you're thinking what in the world is a propitiation i'm going to tell you in a moment But I want to tell you the two broad benefits. Number one, the father's heart is completely satisfied. Number two is that the scandal has been lifted that was brought against God's name and God's character. Because you see, the truth is that your salvation has way more to do with God's glory than you might imagine. Way more to do with God's character than you might imagine. God's sense and sensibility, if you will imagine. Let's look at the word propitiation just very briefly. It's the word hilasterion. In the ancient world of the people who wrote this kind of language, it meant a covering that was meant to be a sacrifice. 
It could also include the idea of payment. It could also include the idea of satisfaction or appeasement in payment. So it's a satisfaction. It's a satisfaction that satisfy God's justice. Let me give you yet another example. Imagine. Tragically. That someone in your family is in a car accident. Because a drunk driver hit your son or your daughter. And took their life. And your son or your daughter was 19, just graduated from school. She was accepted at the best college and university. She was in love with a young man who was going to make all of her dreams come true. She was beautiful and talented and gifted and had her whole life in front of her. And the judge asks you what you will accept as a fair and just settlement for the death of your daughter. Will it be the imprisonment of the person who killed her? What if he decides to give a hundred thousand dollars? Will that be a satisfactory solution in your eyes to the loss of your child? Or what if he offers a million dollars? Or what if he offers ten million dollars? What would be the satisfying solution that would make God's heart be completely satisfied? And Paul argues that the sacrifice of Jesus becomes the satisfying solution to not just your sin and your sin and your sin, but every sin in every age under every circumstance. So when Paul uses the expression propitiation, it means the satisfying solution by his blood. It meant a willingness to die. It meant a supreme sacrifice, a terrible suffering, a voluntarily laying down of life. Paul explains because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. In what sense? God knew, God knew, God knew in his heart of hearts and his soul of souls that there was going to be a satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And that's why in the Old Testament, God was slow to judge sin and quick to demonstrate love to everyone. And this is why God is so patient with you and why God is so patient with me and why God is so patient with everyone in our family. 
through this one event, sin, past, present and future would be paid in full. And if you don't believe me, read Hebrews chapter 10, verses one through four. And then again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 14. In verse 26, it says to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul argues that now everyone, everyone, everyone can see that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's difficult to grasp how pardon for sin could be available to everyone on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. There are those who argue pardon by faith Pardon without penalty, pardon without working, pardon without cost, pardon without religious ritual. Pause. I want you to think about a life that you could live. That was perfect in duty, perfect in sacrifice, perfect in generosity. And let's imagine that each and every person in this room did exactly that. Let's imagine that every single person who's ever lived did that. Do you think that that would equal the sacrifice of Jesus? Would that make the perfection of his sacrifice equal? To the sum and the substance of every person doing everything right as best they could for as long as they could. No. By the way, is that the case? As everyone in every generation did exactly what was right every single time. Oh, by the way, is it right? That's exactly what you did. Every single moment. Every single thought, every single action. There's no cost big enough to satisfy the problem except one the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus provides the currency necessary to satisfy God. It's seen in four glorious facts. Number one, God's righteousness is seen in his willingness and power to forgive sins. Number two, God's righteousness is revealed in his patient long suffering and putting up with man's sin and putting on man's sin and putting away man's sin. And number three, God's righteousness is seen in his perfect justice. God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus and the death of Jesus for our sin. And number four, God's righteousness is seen in his willingness and ability and commitment to be the justifier. Do you understand the passage that you just read? It's basically saying this. How can I know that I have a right relationship with God and I stand approved in God's sight? And the answer is, God says, I'll make sure that that happens. I'll do it. I will make absolutely certain that that happens. 
In that event, who gets the glory? God. You see, Paul knows that this news is going to prompt so many more questions. Well, does this mean I have to dress funny and act funny and talk funny in order to be saved? No. Well, wait a minute. Who gets the glory? Can anyone qualify? What about the law? Oh, by the way, that's oh, that's for next week. Oh, I got to stop. But before I stop, we also need to start. Especially for the person who wasn't quite convinced that you could be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it isn't the presence or the absence of a ministry. And it isn't the presence or the absence of knowing the Bible. It isn't the presence or the absence of every good thing that you could possibly do. It is simply on the basis of what Jesus has done. And if you come to God on those terms, he'll accept you. And if you don't come to him on those terms, he will reject you. My advice, go on his terms and be accepted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would with deeper understanding and with knowledge affirm your love and your majesty. Lord, when we think about your power to forgive sins, when we think about your long suffering, when we think about how you have put on sin and put away sin, we are flabbergasted that we could experience that love and embrace that mercy. And Lord, we're so grateful that you are not only willing, but able both to be just and the justifier of those who don't deserve to be justified. And so again, Lord, I pray for that person who's just beginning to drink from the well of grace. Lord, I pray that they would take a good, long, hard drink. That we are chosen and adopted and accepted in the beloved that we are made right because of what Jesus has done. And for that person who's never experienced that, Lord, I pray even now by your Holy Spirit, you would draw them. Lord, I pray that they would ask the question, am I a sinner? And if the answer is yes, then the only question that makes sense is, do you want to experience forgiveness? And if the answer is yes, then there's only one question that seems worth asking do you believe that Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the dead do you believe the truth that Jesus' sacrifice is the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin and are you ready to receive him now and if the answer is yes Lord I pray that that's exactly what he or she would do that they would whisper with confidence Lord, I want you in my life. I want to be accepted by you on the basis not of what I will do or can do, but on what Jesus has done. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's just remember God's grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace.